Just a quick warning, this interview covers some topics that are a little dark and depressing, so if that doesn't sound like something you're up for, we'll see you next time. Welcome to The Order of Things. I'm your host, Alec. This week, I talked to Joe Packer about pessimism. Joe is a communications professor at Central Michigan University. He is interested in exploring pessimism as it is expressed in pop culture in shows like True Detective and Rick and Morty. The pessimist tradition, he writes, asks the basic question, is life actually a good thing? While society is encouraging everyone to be fruitful and multiply, some pessimists have argued that to bring children into the world is inherently immoral. I talked to Joe about how pessimist thinking appears in Christian thought, transhumanism, and science fiction. And before we get into it, if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, it'd mean the world to us if you left a review. It helps more people discover what we're doing so we can keep making the show. All right. uh, Can you just say your name and what you do real quick? Sure. I'm Joe Packer. I'm a professor of communication at Central Michigan University. And Joe, you have written a book called A Feeling of Wrongness with Ethan Stoneman, uh, where you explore how pessimism is sort of propagated through popular media. And I guess I should first ask the question, what is pessimism? There are a lot of different definitions of pessimism. Eeyore, he's a pessimist, I guess, under one definition. But this book is looking at a very particular definition of pessimism, and it's the idea that we would be better off without life, essentially, that life is not a good thing. So is this, I know there's lots of different flavors of of pessimism from Arthur Schopenhauer to Eugene Thacker, I'm sure lots of uh, other people in between. Uh, Is it all sort of anti-life, if you will, that, that life should not exist? Well, you know, Schopenhauer definitely would fall under this category, although, you know, a a Schopenhauer scholar may take issue with that. But I think generally speaking, most people would say Schopenhauer says life is undesirable. A lot of people would say Nietzsche is a pessimist. He has a relatively dim view in some respects on, um, you know, the nature of progress. But at the same time, he really values life. And so he wouldn't be a pessimist in this group of pessimists that we're talking about. And and this group is very small. So it's almost like nihilism plus life shouldn't exist. Because I feel like there's a lot of nihilists out there who might sort of hedonistically appreciate life or a variety of other things. But pessimism goes one step further. Right. Yeah. So they're oftentimes grouped in with nihilists and they are they, they share some characteristics in terms of there isn't necessarily any meaning, but they're not nihilists in the sense that they definitely hold, they do believe that life is undesirable, um, which is, you know, a pretty firm belief on their part. And in that sense, separates them from nihilists who just would say nothing matters. You know, they, they do think suffering matters, a lot of them. And is that's one of the things that makes life problematic. Uh, I want to talk a a little bit about this more, but I sort of have an overriding question, which is, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Eugene Thacker, who says pessimism is a preoccupation with the worst, that life is without meaning, without purpose, uh, and also in many cases not worth living. Uh, And I guess that raises the question, what's the point in telling people about it? So 
that is an interesting question. Uh, first, I want I want to say that I'm not here to you know convert any pessimists in the audience, <laughs> or even to say that you know I align with all of these views. And that you know there are probably pessimists that don't share these things, right? Right. But what when we're looking at these pessimists that do, why do they do it? Thomas Ligotti, who is a writer of horror fiction, but has also written, you know, nonfiction philosophical text on pessimism, basically says that, you know, he realizes that his writing is a distraction, you know, is a way of not facing life's badness. And he's more or less okay with that. So maybe that's the reason, you know, it's tough to say it's tough to get into the the head of someone who feels this way and to say this is their motivation for doing it. Um, I imagine some of them, uh, David Benatar uh, wrote a book that basically says no one should have children. It's unethical to have kids because life is bad. Life is undesirable. And I, I think that he seems like a person who's just preoccupied with human suffering. And he thinks that, you know, for every person he's preventing from coming into existence, he's, he's doing something good. Right. And so right. that that's the idea that, you know, he's not a nihilist. I don't think uh, he's someone who just thinks that life's badness is greater than its goodness. And he has some other philosophical arguments about why coming into existence is undesirable. Uh, one of the things that you write about in the book, you describe sort of what I'll call an optimist conspiracy to the world. What, what do you mean by that? That idea comes from Peter Zaff, who was a Norwegian Scandinavian philosopher. And the specific, the, the specific term of conspiracy comes from Thomas Ligotti, who I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And he's just making the argument that there are so many things in our society that are structured around optimism, not optimism in terms of, you know, the glass is half full, but optimism in terms of life is just good or it is what it is. You know, what's the, you know, just get on board, you know, get with the program. One of the ways you frame it in the book that I found helpful to think about is that optimism, uh, in addition to being the glass is half full, is a, a sort of mind frame that seeks to make sense of the world and, and find purpose and joy and all these other things within it. Whereas pessimism uh, seeks no order, seeks no meaning. Um, I think it's Eugene Thacker who says pessimism is, is uh, guilty of the great occidental crime of pretending it's not all for a reason. Um, and a th an interesting thing that I want to talk about that you, you bring up in the book is uh, an idea from Michael Hyde. I, I think uh, I, I don't often think about rhetoric that often, uh, but Michael Hyde says that rhetoric, just the idea of uh, you know persuading people, the the act of oration, etc. Uh, he says that rhetoric's purpose is to quote transform space and time into dwelling places, uh, and in such a way that we might feel more at home with others in our surroundings. Can can you explain that a little bit? So. Before I get to rhetoric, I'll start with an even easier one, argument. Mm -hmm. So the idea of logic and argument. So I'll just present the facts and I will convince you with a well-structured, well-thought-out argument. Well, if it's true that logic persuades people and that we can understand the world and order it and uh, make arguments about it, then why can't we improve the world? 
why right. if, if we can make sense of the world in that way. And so the use of a traditional argument assumes, you know, an optimistic world. And so a lot of these pessimists like Schopenhauer, he makes a bunch of arguments in traditional book form. We, Ethan, my co-author and I kind of make the case that that is self-defeating because it relies on this optimistic worldview. And rhetoric is, you know, not necessarily the same as argument. It's not the same as argument, okay. but functions similarly in the sense that rhetoric assumes common places of connection. That's what allows you to persuade other people is, you know, drawing on this sort of shared meaning. And again, if there is this shared meaning, the possibility of shared meaning and understanding, then that seems to point to an optimistic rather than a pessimistic, meaningless existence. You call it a sense-making machine with which to impose order, which I found pretty interesting. You know, one I one sort of criticism levied against pessimism a lot is that, in your own words, it's the self-indulgent ramblings of middle-aged bourgeois cranks. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, wh why does it seem that pessimism seems to sprout among the well-to-do? I, uh, I think you might know more a bit about this, but uh, I think Schopenhauer came from a, a wealthy family. Uh, Nietzsche's father was, was a pastor. Uh, I don't know much about Eugene Thacker's life, but he seems to have a nice middle class lifestyle in a in a sort of developed, highly industrialized, highly capitalized world. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah. And they tend to be men, you know, uh, mm -hmm. although we do talk a little bit about Sarah Perry, who wrote the book, Every Cradle is a Grave. But yeah, generally speaking, they and you know, Buddhism is not pessimism, but certainly shares a lot of characteristics. So I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but generally speaking, uh, a lot of the major figures that are identified with this particular type of pessimism do seem to come from means, do seem to be white, do seem to be male, do seem to have a certain amount of money. Now, I, again, I don't know, right? But the proposition that we present is that if you are excluded, if you are sort of on the bottom end of a social hierarchy, then it's reasonable to assume that the badness of your life is a result of that hierarchy. And so you wouldn't necessarily say life itself is problematic, but the structures within society are problematic. And perhaps if we change those things, then you know, from your own personal experience, that would make your life better. Is it, for instance, um, if you're black in America being harassed by the police, you know, the wider structure of racism, these are sorts of the things that are immediately presented to you uh, that are, I don't think anyone would doubt, sort of causes of, of your suffering. But without those sort of very um, present, uh, concrete forms of suffering, when all of those are taken away, there's still kind of like a, a, an emptiness to existence that people like Schopenhauer, who had all of his needs sort of accounted for, did not have to deal with these sorts of things. Uh, without those things to worry about, he is just left sort of pondering the, the emptiness that's left. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, another very interesting thing that I found in your book was you describe uh, a lot of Christianity, not current Christianity, but uh, older Christianity as kind of inherently 
pessimist. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So that's not my work. That's drawing more on Thomas Ligotti. So again, horror writer who wrote this nonfiction book. And he identifies a lot. He basically traces, you know, anyone who he thinks meets his definition of pessimism, thinking life is inherently um, undesirable. And he's able to identify a variety of groups and my memory's a little bit hazy on this, but he sort of says that the, the Gnostics, Gnostics are um, an example of this. And there is also a group that basically thinks that the God of the Old Testament was not God, but a demon and kind of created, you know. So th- there are all these kind of like strains within Christianity that are sort of making the case that life is undesirable. And to a certain degree, a reasonable case can be made that all Christian, I mean, all Christianity sort of says that life is undesirable. You know, we had things, things were going well in the garden and then, you know, not so well. <laughs> yeah. We're not living our best life right now. Um, well, there's something, uh, I think it's Augustine and this idea permeates throughout lots of Christianity, but that life on earth is suffering. Uh, and then we, die and then the thing we have to look forward to is you know the the afterlife now i don't know if the afterlife part necessarily fits the definition of pessimism but when you read someone like schopenhauer or thacker or Ligotti uh talking about how life is inherently suffering and struggle etc cetera, etc cetera, um it, i mean it it seems uh very augustinian or or, or something like that right but the a pessimist would probably say that that is anchoring, right? That's right. that strategy of avoidance and not avoidance, but it's to say, well, yes, life is suffering, but it's okay because we're going to get to the afterlife. And the it's okay. It's the okay because that is the anchoring, you know, my right. suffering is okay because there is heaven because, uh, you know, I'm suffering for my country, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Exactly. Whereas, you know, there are some, pessimists who kind of express Christian ideas. And one of the most disturbing, I don't know, disturbing, but yeah, disturbing in this case is a, there was this blogger and basically made the case that if you think Christianity is true, then um, he was writing about a woman who killed her kids and was the the woman was uh, that movie based off of her. I'm not or am sure. I thinking of another? It was a woman. She drowned her two kids. Yeah. Or something? Right. Yeah. And the argument was sort of, you know, they're young and innocent, so they'll go to heaven. Right. And so the idea is just kind of like if if you're you're a pessimist and a Christian. You should definitely not have kids because the prospect that one of your kids would go to hell is just like so very high. <laughs> well, yeah, it's both very high. If you look at, you know, scripture, right, just that. Most people aren't getting into heaven. And it's also just so awful, so terribly bad that how could you ever risk having a kid under that scenario? And uh, another sort of interesting thing you you bring up, and I haven't thought about it in these terms, is that transhumanism is a kind of secularized Christianity in that currently life is suffering, but at the end of this long suffering is a technological utopia in which we uh, discard of our mortal bodies and enter what I will call heaven. Yeah. And that's not 
the, the most original argument on our part, you know, we're sort of drawing a, a lot of people have made this connection between transhumanism and the Christian salvation narrative, you know. But but in the book, you kind of subvert the transhumanist expectation by, well, pointing to a lot of science fiction and, and other sources of fiction uh, that instead of technology bringing a kind of utopia, it'll bring essentially hell. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? We take a look at the short story, I Have No Mouth um, and I Must Scream. And I hadn't really, you know, I read it recently and it is terrifying, I think, you know, and it's one of the most republished short stories and most translated short stories of all time, basically about a future where a computer tortures seven people or five, I don't remember how many, tortures a small number of humans basically forever, just you know, it's that humanity has gone extinct. And I, I believe you say you soon discover that the seven survivors are, are not the lucky ones. They are, in fact, the worst off. Right. Right. And it's just this idea that if the transhumanists think that we'll merge with machines or upload our brains or whatever into machines, and then that will give us the capacity to have untold pleasures, you know, happiness times a million. But that capacity seems like it would, you know, if you could magnify your pleasure, you could also magnify your suffering times a million. And so all of these transhumanist works are basically making the case that, look, we're going to, you know, shed our bodies and enter this secular heaven. And the I have no mouth kind of makes the case, well, look, you know, if if machines can bring us this pleasure, they could also bring us the suffering. This is also, you know, if you watch some episodes of Black Mirror, it's a theme that emerges quite frequently on that show. And we make the argument that because transhumanism has basically hijacked our previously religious understanding of heaven and sort of supplanted it with a secular version, it opens it up to that same question of, you know, secular hell, essentially, because they've they haven't kind of mapped their own thing. They've kind of overlaid their vision on top of a previous cultural understanding that uh, they've just done it without the hell. Right. So it's all the good, not the bad. But that's still there. Right. It's still sort of underneath structurally. And that kind of allows it to emerge in these other forms and be kind of problematic for that transhumanist vision. Now, I want to switch gears to something a little bit out there, which is flat earthers. Uh, I, I might, I'm certainly taking you by surprise here, but I, I think sure. I hope you'll follow along. Yeah. Um, so I had uh, a few months ago, someone sent me, well, I'll say this. Someone had sent me a video about flat earth that they claimed was very convincing. Uh, for the record, it was not convincing and I, whatever. Uh, but it was a, a fairly large YouTuber who was describing the flat earther theory and what never really, what, what I never really understood about flat earth was what is the motivation for saying there's a round earth versus a flat earth. And apparently the reason they've come up with has like a striking resemblance to 
uh, cosmic nihilism as espoused by Eugene Thacker, which is, well, I'll, I'll get there in a second. But essentially, the reason the world powers want to hide the truth of the flat earth is to spread a, a kind of cosmic nihilism. In other words, if we're just living on this tiny speck of rock in an infinite cosmos where nothing matters, like what's the point of it all? And if there's no point to anything, uh, this kind of nihilism lays the foundation for the powers that be to pump us full of consumerist ideals and pharmaceuticals and all this garbage. Now, of course, I don't agree with this, but it's interesting to find a fringe group on the Internet espousing nonsense, essentially saying, hey, you know, this idea that comes up in things like Rick and Morty or in more academic settings like uh, Eugene Thacker, this is the tool that the world powers are using to control us. What, what do you make of that? <laughs> You know, interesting, I guess, <laughs> you know, it, it, it hmm. well, on the one hand, I do think that cosmology is persuasive and does have not intrinsically, but a lot of people associate it with philosophical implications. And so not in this book, but in the previous book I wrote, I talked a lot about how the question of whether or not alien life exists is tied very much to the philosophical debate about relativism. And mm -hmm. I think to a certain degree, you could make a case that that's somewhat similar, right? The cosmology, you know, if we're at the center, then we have purpose and meaning. And if we're not at the center or, or we're not on this flat disc or whatever, then that's not the case. And so I think even though obviously the world is not flat, um, certainly it's more likely that aliens don't exist um, than the Earth is flat. I think that those things sort of ties into this this idea of, of centrality and how that implicates our sense of value. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting the way you talk about the world for us because the, the language used was essentially, you know, in the flat Earth, universe you know it was made for us by some supreme being i don't know if it's all explicitly christian uh and there is sort of purpose and order to the universe rather than random chaos uh but yeah it's very much this optimist uh making sense of the world but in a weird way and the, this person didn't really get into it but it is in itself seems like this sort of reactionary uh this this response to Postmodernism, which is to say, uh, you know, the fragmenting of, you know, social discourse and meaning and value, the death of God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying, no, 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 like we want to reestablish uh, this sort of hegemonic narrative of meaning, whether it's from a Christian God or, or, or I am not really too sure what they believe, but they they're certainly trying to reestablish that. Yeah. And, and it's an old strategy, I, I think. I, I think Plato essentially does this in his dialogue, the, you know, Timaeus, and he's arguing it against sophistic ideals, which certainly there are differences, but the sophists and the postmodernists, postmodernists in quote, uh, do have a lot in common, right? And so, you know, Plato is using a cosmology to argue against their sort of relativism people are what, what was the relativism of uh, the sophist you're saying sure so the sophists it's a little bit tricky to ascribe views to them because a lot of their stuff you know 
is fragmented and get translated through time. But as we understand them through the platonic dialogues, they're kind of making the case that, well, you know, man is the measure of all things uh, is one of the famous quotes. And not to say that like, oh, we're so special, but rather to just say like, look, you know, there, there's nothing that exists outside of us. There's no truth. We create all of those things. All of this is just sort of like stuff that we made up. We could easily think something different. It's sort of culturally defined. And Plato was basically saying, nope, that's not the way it is. There is absolute truth that we can find. And you're basically wrong. And we can sort of see some proof of that absolute truth in the structure and nature of the universe where we're sort of central and there are no other alien life. Um, because even in ancient Greece, there were folks who were making the case that basically there were planets with aliens on them, which is, um, I believe the history channel would call them ancient astronauts. <laughs> is that, is that the right word? <laughs> uh, no, these were the, the atomists basically where the kind of, where the word Adam comes from made the argument that, you know, the universe is full of these tiny little pieces and the universe is huge or potentially infinite. And there are all of these other planets with other life that's not like us. And so Plato was basically saying, nope, that's not the way it is. Um, it's just us and we're at the center. So, so, you know, I, you already said this, but to sort of uh, recap it, it's that especially in ancient Greece, it seems that people's view of the universe and cosmology reflected their, their personal philosophies. Yes. Now they probably wouldn't say that, right. They would say that the nature of the universe informs their view mm. on truth. Uh, but certainly Plato uses the nature of universe as an argument against philosophical opponents. I argue in a different book. <laughs> I want to change gears a little bit to talk about pop culture, which is mostly, well, it is the the whole point of, of your book um, in that you explore pop culture as a means to spread pessimist messages to convince people uh, quasi rhetorically of the lack of value in life. Uh, and the, the main examples you give are weird fiction in general. So if anyone's familiar with authors like H.P. Lovecraft or uh, I believe Ambrose Bierce, um, also True Detective, specifically the the first season, uh, Rick and Morty, which I, is uh, pretty popular these days, uh, and Final Fantasy, which for non-video game players out there is like a, a very famous game from at least my childhood, even if I, I didn't play it. Um, so what what is the the point of sort of getting into pop culture like this? We start with the idea that argument, rhetoric, the traditional tools of persuasion will fail a pessimist because they're optimistic. And so even if your message is pessimistic, if you're using these tools that are optimistic, you're you're going to fail. So then we're kind of thinking, well, how could a pessimist kind of effectively present a pessimistic case in a pessimistic form? And that led us to popular culture. You know, a lot of them have rather explicit pessimistic messaging. So True Detective, one of the characters 
is basically saying things that are paraphrased from Thomas Ligotti so close that the writer of the show was kind of accused of plagiarism. I don't think it's plagiarism necessarily. So there, there's pessimistic content. But the question then becomes, is the form pessimistic? Or is it basically the same thing as writing a, a book about pessimism, a treatise about pessimism the same way Schopenhauer did? And we kind of make the case that all of these case studies are examples of um, pessimistic content in a pessimistic form. And part of that is the idea of hiddenness. And so the idea that there's something, you know, a work that's so explicitly pessimistic, it's easier, it's easy to distract yourself from it or to ignore it, right? Just don't pay any attention. Like who wants to watch a TV show or read a book that's just like bleak, you know, unending bleakness? You just, it's hard to attract an audience. And so part of our argument is kind of that pessimistic forms tend to be hidden, tend to have some esoteric element to them. And that's part of the way that they pull in an audience. Now, you also mentioned Rick and Morty. Uh, what's So Rick and Morty, for anyone who hasn't seen it, there's an alcoholic mad scientist grandfather who more or less has godlike power through the power of science and his grandson who he drags on these terrible adventures. Uh, but the, the grandfather is more like Rick is, is a mouthpiece for, you know, love is just a chemical reaction that compels animals to breed. Um, you know, when there's like massive suffering goes, go going around, he says, don't think about it. he, you know, just hops between realities where his, where his family dies and just replaces a new one. So the, the idea is not only through like the infinite cosmos necessarily, but in the show, there's also infinite dimensions where that famously he says, what about the reality where Hitler cured cancer? The answer is don't think about it, but more or less says that everything's meaningless. So the character Morty at one point when telling his sister that a version of himself is buried in the backyard, more or less says nothing exists on purpose, nothing matters. So let's go watch TV. Uh, now, I, along with many others, including yourself, have noted the sort of nihilism inherent in this. Uh, and you say it's this show is a way to sort of spread this pessimist message. Uh, but really, I'm kind of curious because while that pessimist message is certainly there, I'm also looking at the reaction uh, of some people and their tendency to emulate Rick. Now, what's also interesting here is that Rick by the show creator's own admission is sort of an anti-hero. You're not supposed to look up to him. He is a sad alcoholic who tries to kill himself uh, and is just terrible to his family. But people nonetheless will pretend or, or try to say that they're as smart as Rick or that the frustrations that Rick deals with are their frustrations. Uh, and they sort of take solace in his genius. So I guess yeah, like how do you grapple with that? Does, is that sort of a concise enough framing or do I need to reword it? No, that? no, absolutely. That makes total sense. So, yeah, I think that the classic example is that at the end of one of the seasons, Rick goes on this rant about how life's purpose is this discontinued McDonald's Szechuan sauce. <laughs> yes. And then McDonald's re-releases, you know, in real life, re-releases the Szechuan sauce and all of these Rick and Morty fans go to the McDonald's and they're just like going wild, 
causing fights, trying to get this Szechuan sauce. It's just sort of like you obviously don't get, you know, you don't get it, right? And um, this is not a desirable thing, you know. And I, I guess I would just, I would say that that kind of ties into the hiddenness, the esoteric. You can watch True Detective and not be on the Reddit forums and not think too deeply about the clues. And you're just sort mm-hmm. of like, oh, they got the bad guy. Great job, you know, and don't really come away with a pessimistic reading of the show. And that's just kind of part of the nature of pessimistic argument. It has to have that hidden element. It can't be too explicit. It has to be open to misinterpretation because pessimism is so radically different from the way that most of us view the world that we would be kind of turned off from, you know, we just wouldn't engage with something that is explicitly pessimistic. And so the argument that we make about Rick and Morty, as you said, many people have pointed out that there are pessimistic themes um, and, you know, wisecrack has a video and they do a great job. So shout out to them. And uh, I know know you're involved with that. And, you know, just in reviews that when the New York times is watching, um, true detective they're like yeah it has these pessimistic themes and so it it's not enough that it has to have that pessimistic content or certainly we're interested in pessimistic content joined with pessimistic form and we argue that the pessimistic form of rick and morty is its particular nature of merging tragedy and comedy because you know certainly it seems pretty self-evident that comedy is kind of optimistic. Oh, we're just going to laugh at the world. Even if things are bad, we'll laugh. Okay, that's optimistic. But tragedy is also optimistic. And when you look at a lot of the sort of theorists of tragedy, they're making the case that what a tragedy provides is catharsis, you know, a, a letting loose of our feelings and emotions. So even though we see something bad happen, it's a watching that is purging us and ultimately kind of leaves us more in tune with life. And, and if you look at Nietzsche's writing, he kind of makes the case that, you know, tra- the value of tragedy uh, for that purpose. Um, and so, but we make the case that what Rick and Morty does is it merges tragedy and comedy in a way that pulls us in, but denies us that catharsis because, you know, tragedy typically is very kind of structured. We're moving, there's this tragic thing and then we're kind of done. But the tragedy in Rick and Morty just becomes interspersed with what's otherwise this like fun family sitcom. And you see a similar technique, you know, we didn't write about Bojack Horseman, but something very similar is happening in Bojack Horseman. I could easily make the case that it's pessimistic in the same way. I think maybe the last thing I wanna ask you is, in the same way that uh, anti-establishment rebellion was was and still is commodified. I'm just thinking of Rage Against the Machine, which was a truly radical band, uh, the way they sort of dispersed in pop culture and were listened to by what are now finance bros or uh, Che Guevara t-shirts, etc. It seems like pessimism or, or more broadly nihilism, I, I know there's a difference there, is also having a, a similar moment. Uh, you have very popular shows like BoJack Horseman, Rick and Morty, uh, True Detective, uh, people, maybe not in a pessimist way, but certainly in a nihilist way, are starting to espouse these views. And I'm even thinking of uh, Eugene Thacker's book, who you know is uh, a pessimist, um, In the Dust of This Planet, uh, I believe was turned into an art piece, which was later turned into a jacket, which got worn by 
Jay-Z in a music video that just said in the dust of this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's a very amorphous question, but do you make anything of the commodification or uh, of pessimism that, or, or even nihilism uh, sort of divorced from its original intent? Yes. So this would be sublimation, you know, the idea that we can sort of embrace this thing and, and gain pleasure from this thing that should be deeply disturbing to us. So are pessimistic works at risk of sublimation? Absolutely. Um, I don't think that, you know, when Rick and Morty fans are screaming about Szechuan sauce, I don't think that's sublimation. I just don't think they they get it or they're not <laughs> receiving the message at that level it, it, to, you know, get it. I don't, you know, who, who's to say what the meaning is, but they're certainly not taking a pessimistic reading and sublimating it. They're just getting a different reading from the text, but certainly there could be people who take pleasure in that kind of nihilism. And Mm -hmm. that's definitely a risk. um, If you are a pessimist and you're trying to persuade people of pessimism. Um, And I guess what hedges against that is, is twofold. Um, One, just the idea that if you're a pessimist, you're more or less, you're not super excited about your chances, I guess. I mean, you're, you're probably more or less resigned to the fact that there's not going to be a global pessimistic revolution. You're sort of trying to pick off a few people here or there. <laughs> and secondly, is the idea that kind of the hiddenness of the messages. So if a, if a, if true detective sets up a bunch of expectations and then fails to meet those expectations in a way that leaves their audience unsettled, that's difficult to sublimate, I think, you know? Right. Um, and when we look at other forms of these case studies, like in final fantasy seven, we, we talk about the fans reactions to the death of a, you know, I don't want to spoil a, uh, you know, a death 15 of a year old game or whatever, <laughs> but uh, a death of an important character. Um, it's, it would be difficult to, to, to sublimate that given the, the way that we've outlined it. And so, yes, definitely it's a risk, certainly commodification and sublimation. Um, but you know, pessimism is always a hard sell. So my suspicion is the pessimist, you know, it's the, it's the best they got, even if it's not, Perfect. Far from perfect. Thank you so much, Joseph Packer. He wrote A Feeling of Wrongness, Pessimist Rhetoric on the Fringes of Popular Culture with Ethan Stoneman. Joseph, where can people find you on the internet? I have a pretty late internet presence, but you can find some of my writing on my academia.edu page. And uh, I can't recommend the, the book enough, especially if you are really into pop culture like I am. It's definitely an interesting read, even if you inherently find value in life. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. If you're wondering about when the next episode will come out, there might be a little bit of a gap. I've got one more interview with Ollie Mould already recorded, and then I'm doing my next round of interviews, so I appreciate your patience. Till next time.